Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the whole Bible through the lens of living water, and we hope you'll join us. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Jericho Road in a season that we're calling Living Water. I like to say that most Christians want to read the Bible. They just don't know how to read the Bible. And so they just stick with familiar stories, but leave another thousand pages unread. And this season, we're using the lens of water or the lack of it as a backdrop to Bible stories and places and to get you thinking of old stories in a new way. In our last episode, we looked at Jerusalem and its water, but now we're going to go north to Galilee. The Bible doesn't say this outright, but much of the stories take place on or near a crack in the earth called the Jordan Rift Valley. It's all part of the Great Rift Valley running from eastern Africa into Syria as two tectonic plates meet Asia and Africa, which means that the Sea of Galilee is the lowest freshwater lake on planet Earth. Hey, notice I said lake and not sea. I mean, first of all, it's freshwater. And secondly, it's just not that big. I mean, in a world with no water, they call it a sea, uh, but it's just a lake. It's seven miles across and it's 11 miles long, and you can always see across to the other side, which will be very important for Bible stories. And because the banks are actually mountains, uh, the Sea of Galilee sits in a bowl. And this is important because storms can get in there really quick. I've been reading about these storms. As best I can tell, they happen a few ways. In the summer months, when the temperature is really hot, and it could be 100 degrees Fahrenheit or more, the heated temperature of the surface of the water can suck down the cold air uh, in the mountains above. So that's, that's one way that a storm can happen on the lake. In the winter months, winds can come in from the south and just roll around that bowl and bounce around. But regardless, even with storms and rain, you usually get rainbows. And I remember one time riding with my pally Don uh, up, up along the shore of the lake, and I saw this amazing rainbow shooting out. I was so thrilled with it. I took pictures of it, and then I ran into the hotel where I happened to be staying, and I said to the young woman working behind the counter, did you see the rainbow? Did you see the rainbow? And she looked at me puzzled, and she knew I was American, and she said, do you not have rainbows at home? I think they get them every day. Anyway, it makes me smile to think that Jesus lived in a place that had lots of rainbows. And also, since it sits in a bowl with mountains on every side, the Sermon on the Mount is actually the Sermon on the Bank. And in that sermon, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, to be specific, Jesus would say, a city on a hill can't be hid. There was a city on the eastern shore of that lake, perched high across on the top of the mountain, right? It's called Hippos, a Greek city. It was plastered white, and in the afternoon sun, it would glow. There was actually a city on the hill. Okay, here's another fun fact about the Galilee. Most of the Gospels take place within a 10-mile arc on the northwest shore of the lake beginning with Magdala in the west, home of Mary Magdalene, if that sounds familiar, all the way over to Bethsaida. Bethsaida. Until the COVID lockdown in the summer of 2020, Bethsaida was a mystery. Now, they always had a Bethsaida site that that Christian pilgrims could visit. Uh, It was across the highway from the lake. The only problem was is that they, they found older things in the world of Jesus that they called Bethsaida, and they found newer things from the world of Jesus that they called Bethsaida, but they never really found the town of Bethsaida until 2020. And they found it in the mud, on the shore of the lake, just as the Bible tells us, Bethsaida, 
the home of Peter and Andrew, and the place where Jesus heals a blind man in Mark chapter 8. The scene is remarkable, and I'm thrilled we can finally go there. I'm going to read Mark chapter 8, beginning with the 22nd verse. They came to Bethsaida. Some people brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him, and he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had put saliva on his eyes and laid hands on him, he asked him, Can you see anything? The man looked up and said, I can see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus took his hands on his eyes again, and he looked intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And then he sent him away to his home, saying, Do not even go into the village. Now just think, Jesus uses saliva, just like Sloam and the man blind in John chapter 9. In their world, saliva was believed to be antiseptic, but I like this even better. I like to think of Jesus' saliva as water from God's own mouth to heal this man's broken eyes. And it takes two times. Not because Jesus can't heal him. It's just that sometimes our own response to grace is gradual. Finally, notice he tells him, don't tell anyone. This is a feature of Jesus' ministry in the Galilee. Don't tell anyone. He heals a person. Go to the priest and wash, but don't tell anyone. Uh, Go say your prayers, but don't tell anyone. It's because his fame is growing, but it's fame in the wrong kind of way. Uh, They're beginning to see Jesus as some sort of rock star as opposed to a Messiah, or perhaps the wrong kind of Messiah, the Messiah that could lead an army to kick the Romans out of Judea. No, Jesus has to lay low, even in the midst of his popularity, on the shores of the lake, Bethsaida. You know, speaking of archaeology and finding things, uh, the western side of this 10-mile arc is a real must-see place. Uh, It's the go-to place called the city of Magdala because of a, a find in 2009. So a synagogue was unearthed while they were building a a resort hotel, and this is truly significant. I was educated in seminary in the 1990s, and my professors would tell me that we weren't sure that there were synagogues in the world of Jesus, that perhaps the Gospels were an anachronism, that they would worship on the Sabbath, of course, but perhaps synagogues were a later idea until they found one, just like the Bible said. It's significant because it's not only a synagogue, but it's a place where Jesus would have prayed and Jesus would have preached. It's also significant because of something found in the center of the synagogue, which they call the Magdala Stone. It's a three-dimensional piece of art that some first-century Judean or Galilean traveling to Jerusalem for the festival uh, would have seen the temple so impressed with its beauty that he created a three-dimensional model. It brings the beauty of the temple to their to their Sabbath every day in the Galilee, and we didn't know that Jews did that. So the Magdala stone is an earth-shattering discovery, just as the synagogue is an earth-shattering discovery, and you can see them both today. And now, during the COVID lockdown, another synagogue, just a few hundred yards from this one, has been found, and it too is significant. Now, this second synagogue is still coming up out of the mud, but it's a puzzle. Possibly, this second synagogue was built for the growing industrial section of the city. And I want you to think of something. If the synagogue that we found in Magdala was adorned with a Magdala stone, and it, by the way, is surrounded by by the part of the city that had money, and if there's another synagogue a few hundred yards away that perhaps was built for the working people in in the, say, the fish curing industry or any other industry that they might have uh, there by the shores of the lake, which synagogue do you think Jesus would choose? The rich folks or the poor folks? 
Idan has an intriguing thought about the synagogue as we continue to discover it, right? It's that it's possible that this synagogue split because of the influence and the teaching of Jesus the Galilean who had set this region on fire. Maybe they wanted something a little less fancy and a little less adorned. Anyway, more to come from the shores of the lake on that one. But why the 10-mile arc? Why do most of the Gospels happen in just 10, 10 miles from Magdala to Bethsaida with Capernaum in the middle? Well, the answer is fishing. Fishing. The northwest shore of the lake is shallow and grassy, and that's where the fish are. The prized catch is a species of African tilapia, later called St. Peter's fish, and in Arabic musht, which means comb, because the dorsal fin looks like a comb. And because these are algae-eating fish, they must be caught in nets, either from cast nets from the shore or cast nets from the boat, or in the case of modern fishermen, gill nets using monofilament. Now the stories of the call of the disciples start to make sense, right, why they left their nets to follow Jesus. Tilapia are mouth breeders, meaning that they keep their young inside their mouths, and they sometimes pick up stones that act like a bottle cap to keep the little ones inside, which can explain, when you see it, a strange miracle in Matthew chapter 17. See if you can remember the scene. Matthew 17, verse 24. When they reached Capernaum, collectors of the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, Yes, he does. And when he came home, Jesus spoke of it first, asking, What do you think, Simon? From whom do you think the kings of the earth take toll or tribute? From their children or from others? And when Peter said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the children are free. However, so that we do not give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, You'll find a coin. Take that and give that to them for you and for me. Well, knowing what we know about tilapia now, perhaps the story's not so weird. The, the fish had a coin in its mouth, just like it might have a stone in its mouth. The annual tax was half a shekel per person, and so the coin covered them both. Now the story is not so strange. Well, we know about the fish. We know about the lake. We know about the Northwestern Ark, and we know about the bowl and the weather and the lowest freshwater lake on planet Earth. These days, we even know about the boats. In 1986, a boat hull was found in the mud. It was a drought. And so these two Galilean fishermen, Moshe and Uval Lufan, found this piece of wood. They were able to to keep it wet until they figured out how to inject it with with some sort of plastic to keep it from, from rotting and going away so that they could look at it and study it and put it on display even today. The wood dates from 120 B.C. to about 40 A.D., which lands it squarely in the world of Jesus. It's made of five different types of wood, which means that it was a fishing vessel that they would repair again and again and again, and it could seat about 15 people. It also contained artifacts that identified the boat as Jewish, as opposed to the Greek-speaking Gentile neighbors. This is the significance of the boat. With local mosaics, we can now construct a model of what the boats in the world of Jesus look like. And then for my money, the most exciting thing is that it's very possible, if not probable, that this boat was ridden in or at least seen by Jesus and his friends. Today on the Sea of Galilee, there are Jesus boats, quote unquote, that are basically tricked out pontoon boats to ferry pilgrims across the shore of the lake and to take pictures and a place for their pastor to read a devotion. And it's good corny fun. I love Jesus boats and I love the ride. 
but I do have my own story. So in the winter of 2019, I had lined up a fishing excursion with a large fishing vessel uh, commanded by a member of Idan's kibbutz, which is called Engev on the eastern shore of the lake. But for various reasons, that trip fell through and I was devastated. I wanted to have a fishing experience. And so Galilee, being very relational and everybody knows a guy who knows a guy, Idan gets on the phone and lines up a fishing trip with, with a man named Momi and Michelle. Momi is diminutive for Solomon. I was instructed to meet at 5.30 in the morning outside of a hotel in Tiberias, still dark, and Momi and Michelle would pick me up. I stood out there alone. It was kind of misty in the morning, and a smoky Russian car pulled up with two men in hoodies smoking a cigarette. Momi said, get in. Hey, what could go wrong? Well, we had a great fishing adventure. We went to the to the dock where all the fishermen were gathered. No one spoke a word of English, but I could tell they were laughing at me. But Momi didn't mind because he had a little jingle in his pocket. And we got into a tricked out John boat that had two oars on the side and was loaded down with monofilament that we were to drop after we pulled up the nets that were there. So after they figured out that I was pretty handy with oars, I had a job, which was to keep the keep the boat uh, steady while Momi and Michelle pulled up whatever they caught. It was about mid-morning when Momi let out a torrent of what I could already tell was Hebrew profanity just given by the heat and the anger on his face. Someone had dropped their nets in the grass, which was Momi's turf. Michelle began to scream at me to pull up the oars, and we roared over there to find the the fisherman who had dropped his nets, the offending party. Uh, Therefore, I was to hold the boat steady while Momi reached over and began to thrash and swing and to attempt to choke the man. I was thrilled. We were in the middle of a fishing fight, and I looked up just as a Jesus boat cruised by with an alarmed pastor and a horrified congregation. We were ruining their morning. Here's my takeaway. The first disciples were rough men. The men that Jesus called to follow him that day when he told them to drop their nets on the northwest shore of the lake were not seminary students. Uh, they were not scholars. They were not great intellects. They were fighters. And as as Edan has pointed out, the Sea of Galilee is entirely a Jewish lake now. You can only imagine the fighting for turf when you're fighting against your Greek-speaking Gentile neighbors. No, these were rough men who knew how to fight for what they, what they were supposed to get. And so uh, we learn that the people who follow Jesus are people who could even be just like us. We don't have to be rock stars in order to get into the game. And now we know about fishing. And now we know about the lake and the bowl and the storms and the northwest shore and the boats and even the men. Now we can read Galilee stories with color. And I'd like to read Mark chapter 4, beginning with the 35th verse. On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go across to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took with him in the boat, just as he was. Other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into that boat so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? He woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And then the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with awe and said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him.
Our church, St. Luke's, like many churches, has a worship space where people sit in pews. And we commonly call it the sanctuary, but that's not really the name of it. The name of where we sit is the nave. The sanctuary is the area around the altar. The nave, N-A-V-E, that word is a Latin word that means ship. And if you look up, our own church looks like an inverted boat. It's supposed to. Because we all have storms, we all are afraid, we're all not bright, we're all not smart. We all find ourselves in places where we don't want to be. We find ourselves buffeted by worry, and yet we can come to church and we can get into the boat with Jesus, who has the power to still storms. We hope you've been enjoying this season of Jericho Road as Rich helps us explore the world of the Bible through the lens of living water. If you're interested in finding more ways to catch these lessons, as well as other lessons from Rich and our other clergy members here at St. Luke's, be sure to follow us on Facebook and YouTube at St. Luke's Episcopal Church, Birmingham. There you will find daily and weekly prayers and lessons, as well as live recordings of our Sunday worship services and these very Jericho Road podcasts. For those of you here in the Birmingham area, Rich also offers midweek men's and women's Bible studies. The men's Bible study meets on Wednesday mornings at 7 o'clock in Graham Hall. The women's Bible study meets on Thursday mornings at 10.30 in the Youth Commons. We hope you'll continue to find ways to engage with us here at St. Luke's, and we look forward to seeing you next week.